Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tulsa Daily, your favorite locally based podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and this is the show where I go around and talk to various entrepreneurs, business leaders, community leaders, anyone that's out there trying to make a difference in this little slice of heaven we call home. So, as I always say, if you are a new or recent listener, please go back and check out some of those older episodes. There's just too many fascinating people that I've talked to that you just can't afford to miss it. But this time around, I spoke with Seth Lee Jones, who is the owner of SLJ Guitars, a uh, a shop where he repairs, restores, and as we focus a lot in this interview, builds his own guitars from scratch. So he has a deep knowledge and passion for the art of what it takes to build a quality guitar. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. And without further ado, enjoy. Well, um, I'm here with Seth Lee Jones of SLJ Guitars. Um, yeah, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself? What do you what do you guys do, or what do you do? Uh, I build and repair stringed fretted instruments, so acoustic guitars, mandolins, electric guitars, uh, and I play them too. It keeps me out of trouble most of the time. <laughs> How long have you been doing it? Uh, I've been doing this professionally for the last 16 years. Um, I did go to school for this at Musicians Institute in Hollywood, California. Really? I have a degree in manufacturing repair from them. Uh, I graduated top of my class and ended up doing the apprenticeship program with the guy who wrote the curriculum for another five and a half years. Uh, I also worked for uh, several other various shops in Los Angeles during that time. Pretty much didn't have a day off after I got out of school while I lived there. So uh, I, I kept really busy and learned from a lot of different people how to do what I do. Uh, but music really was what got me into doing it. And I started playing at a young age. My parents got me started on piano. And then uh, when I was old enough to uh, be allowed to touch the guitar, <laughs> I got to touch the, the nice guitar that my mom had in the house and uh, started taking lessons when I was about 12. And forgot all about piano. Uh, and my first job was um, working for a guy who made really fine furniture during the summer. I would help him. He was a guy that went to our church. And, uh, so that's where you picked up some wood stuff? Well, it, it dawned on me one day working for him. I was like, uh, man, you make really nice stuff out of wood. Guitars are made out of wood. So I started asking him <laughs> how hard it would be to make one. And we tried to make one, and it sucked. But... It got me started in that direction. But it worked. It did. It played. It, and so what I ended up doing at a young age is is going to yard sales and buying Tyscos and Harmonies and all these uh, pariah type guitars that you could get for nothing back then. I'd take them home and just butcher them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of got the bug from doing that. That's cool. That's cool. So then, so then that means so going into college, you had already decided this is what I'm going to do. I want to go learn how to do it. Oh, uh, absolutely not. No. Oh, no, really? Not even okay. close. I actually went to college for uh, classical guitar. I went to L.A. Valley College for classical. I did that for about a year and a half and realized I hated classical. Uh, <laughs> it was just so <laughs> regimented and uh, just I don't know, man. It just did not speak to me. Uh, and then I went to school for auto upholstery. I actually have a journeyman's in auto upholstery, and I did that for really? about three years and decided that I really did not like doing that either. Um, and I found that school, uh, Musicians Institute had a program, uh, GCA, found that through uh, through a friend that had went and had gotten a factory line job, 
which is what I didn't want to do. I wanted to learn how to make guitars instead of do a factory line job. But it, it pointed me in the direction that I could go and do that. And I, I took out a student loan and did it. Where uh, was the factory line job? Uh, well, I mean, in Los Angeles, California, where I was for 11 years, uh, there's a lot of factory line jobs there. There's ESP and Schecter and Fender and uh, there's Don Grolsch and just a lot of a lot of uh, smaller than these bigger companies uh, that you could do factory stuff at, you know, huh. um, where you're just doing like one thing all day long. You know, I wanted to work for people who were making uh, unique instruments and doing a variety of the processes. Uh, when I worked for Carruthers, I got to do a little bit of everything. So that that was neat because it was a small shop. There wasn't a huge amount of employees. Uh, they would put me to task on a little bit of everything, depending on what was going on that day. Okay. So most of what I do and most of what I did was restoration and repair. Uh, but Carruthers Guitars did make somewhere around 200 of their own instruments a year. And uh, some of the other companies that I worked for were right around that same or a little bit below. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, here, real quick. Pause real quick. Let's move a little bit right there. Okay. All right, so what exactly, we'll just go the timeline. So what years were you at school learning how to do this then? Uh, this would have been 05, 06. Okay. Uh, was when I went to school. And then my apprenticeship lasted until late 2010. Um, so. Okay, and then then you went to work. And then what, what eventually ended you up here in Tulsa? Well, I'm from Tulsa. I was oh. born here. Okay. Uh, I grew up in West Tulsa, off of Charles Page and 48th. Um, so I'm uh, definitely a Tulsa native for sure. So when you live in a place like like that, cost of living there is a lot higher than it is here. Yeah. And I came back to Tulsa for a visit and saw some of the cool things that are going on. You know, uh, a lot of downtown wasn't quite what it is now, but it was starting to be. Okay. Uh, and I got to see some of the music that was going on around around here and. It's like, wow, this is actually cool. Uh, I want to move back here because I can rent a house for what I rent an apartment for there. Um, Probably less than. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know, now I've, I've paid this place off. And I, I talked to my buddies back in Los Angeles. And I'm like, hey, I paid my house off in August. And they're like, you did what? Because the house there is like half a million dollars. And I sure. make guitars, not kidneys. You know, like yeah. these things are not terribly expensive. I put a lot of effort into making these things. And. I mean, just the materials alone, uh, I'm at almost a third of what my profit margin is. It's not a whole lot of break, you know, so I need to be somewhere where I can afford to do what I do. So I've said yeah. this on every time I've been interviewed about what I do. If I lived in Los Angeles, I would still be working for someone else. Mm. I would not have my own shop. Uh, it's not obtainable there. You have to have gotten there way before now because the real estate and, and just the space to do what you need to do as an artist of any kind is astronomical. Hmm. Are there zoning differences too? Like, would you be allowed to have a, a shop in your own house in LA? Um, yes, there's certain parts of it you wouldn't be able to do. Um, like you're not, you can't even buy nitrocellulose lacquer in city limits in Los Angeles. It's illegal to spray it. It's like, uh, they got a lot of air quality control stuff that goes on there. There's, okay. There's good reason for that because there's like 22 million people in that town. So, <laughs> so if everybody was outside spraying aerosols, it probably wouldn't be very good for breathing. That makes sense. Uh, so um, I was going to ask, 
Oh yeah, you were because I I wanted to talk a little bit about this place because you were telling me some of the history of this house and shop. Yeah, and kind of how maybe how you came to. Well, guitars have been made in this shop since about 1981. Huh. Uh, this house formerly belonged to Dixie Michelle, who's my late mentor, and uh, she built really really fancy pool cues and really really fancy acoustic guitars. I mean, if you look her up on YouTube, and uh, there's some articles on, uh, I think it's, I uh, can't remember that website name. What was her name? Uh, Guitar Company of America. Her name was Dixie Michelle. Dixie Michelle, and, okay. Uh, she bought this house back in the early 80s and actually used it as an after-hours pool hall because there used to be a billiards hall up the street, and uh, they would do a bit of gambling on pool games in here, <laughs> and she lived really? in Stabenow. But uh, she moved to Tulsa and made guitars in this house until her passing in 2015. I was actually introduced to Dixie through my friend uh, Jared Tyler. He brought over a mandolin that she had made and showed it to me, and it just blew my mind. It was the craziest, most out-of-the-box thinking mandolin I'd ever seen in my life. He said, you got to meet this lady. She's got cancer. Uh, She's probably not going to be around that much longer. You need to meet this lady. So I came over and met her, and we ended up becoming good friends uh, over talking about guitars. And for the last eight or nine months of her life, I came over here, and she said, I'll show you how to make my style of guitar if you'll keep doing it. Uh, Just want to share this with somebody. She didn't have any kids or any family to pass it to, and she wanted the idea to keep going. So her method of making a steel string is quite a bit different than the accepted traditional method. Her neck actually goes all the way through the body, and the brace pattern is different. It's a lattice brace pattern that's carbon fiber reinforced. So she had a lot of of innovative stuff that she had developed on her own, and she actually helped to uh, start a Gruen guitar company in Nashville. Worked for George Gruen for many years, uh, I guess during the 70s. So she'd been doing this for, uh, I guess, since the mid-60s. Interesting. Uh, She was 77 years old when she passed. Wow. So I, I want to talk about the technical aspects then, because what is what are the because normally for anyone who doesn't know the necks are just, I mean how 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 are the necks explain how a neck would be reinforced on a normal guitar and then how you all do it differently. Well, on a, on a Dixie acoustic, um, there's a bar that actually starts around the middle of the headstock, and it's a square tube and it goes all the way through the neck, and there's a little jog in it where it passes through the body up where the head block would normally be. And it goes all the way to the tail block. And then pushing down on that bar, once it reaches the tail block, that changes the neck angle. And then whenever the angle is determined, that's whenever it's set in place. Um, So that's what's different about it from the traditional method. You have a dovetail joint that keys into a block that's on the top end of the upper bout. And then you would have some sort of stiffener, either uh, a reinforcement rod or an adjustable truss rod that's inside of the neck that would control the bow. There's none of that uh, controllability in Dixie's method, but uh, the part becomes so rigid that you don't really need the adjustment if you can uh, get the leveling done in the fretboard before you fret it. And all the old Martins uh, and you know anything before 1921, uh, they had T-bars in them or they had a piece of ebony or a piece of steel. Uh, having an adjustable truss rod is not a necessity. Uh, there's actually several companies today that still make guitars that don't have them in it. Okay. Uh, Mule Resonator being one of those. Uh, 
Uh, I make a few electrics that don't have um, traditional adjustable rods in them, but most of mine I, I use a compression truss rod that I make in-house. And it's very similar to the original 1921 design. Okay. Uh, except mine, I do not have a weld on the stopper. Uh, being a repair person for the last 16 years, I've replaced my share of truss rods, and I don't want to have to replace any of my own. <laughs> so <laughs> there are no welds on the end of my stopper. It's actually bent over like they did in the Music Mans and G&Ls through the late 70s and early 80s. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So what are there any benefits to doing it that way in terms of you know, longevity. maybe the final product? Longevity? Yeah, longevity. Most, okay. And the compression kind of truss rod, there's the... no... There's no uh, chance for to have rod rattle or peak resonant frequency, sympathetic resonance, they call it. And why don't you um, explain what that is? So what happens is, like, in a modern guitar, they have a dual-action truss rod. Uh, you have two parts, uh, two metal rods that are in there next to one another, and you have a brass key block at either side. Okay. Uh, so as you thread one way or the other, it's going to expand and contract one or the other rod. Okay. Well, those two rods are together. And they clap together whenever you hit the back of the neck. You can pick up any modern guitar from China that has a dual action rod in it and hit the back of the neck, and it just sounds like a bag of rocks. Okay. So the way that they uh, try to alleviate that is they put shrink tube over both of those rods. So here you are trying to make an instrument with acoustic properties and tonal quality, and you're shoving rubber in it. So (laughs) the reason why they use a dual action rod today is because they'll buy an entire pallet of wood and use all of it. Even the stuff that's not really good enough to make a neck out of. Okay. So uh, when you make a nice guitar, you want the wood to either be quarter sawn or flat sawn. Uh, the stuff that's coming out of China and Korea that has these dual action rods in it and, some, and other places as well. Uh, you look at the grain on these necks and it's it's not uh, either of those things. It'll be riff sawn or, or some, some variants of that. Um, anyway, what I'm driving at is that they're, they're using this dual action rod to use all of this material uh, that probably shouldn't have been made into an instrument in the first place. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of, of safeguarding their product, too. So you, you okay. make a product and it's insured to work when it gets there because that rod will go either direction. Uh, if you make a good guitar, the, the truss rod is really only there to counteract the pull of the strings. All right. You know? So you're only going to need to go one way with that. If you're having to go the other way, then that piece of wood's warped. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? Okay. All right. So. I get it. So it's, so it's kind of like they have to, you know, because they're using inferior wood and they have to use an inferior method to secure the wood. Well, and so it, yes, uh, I look at it like this is that when you start making that many of something, it's not art anymore. It's a product and you have to make sure that your product works. So those work. It works to do it that way, but uh, am, am I going to take that over something that I know is going to sound better? No, not me personally as a player, uh, but you know, a kid can go to the store and get a $199 guitar, and it's going to play great for them. I mean, sure. Those instruments are way better than my first guitar, uh, <laughs> but would I want to play one today? No. Right. Because so, I make nice ones. So they so they serve their purpose as being they do. a nice, like, you know, dirt cheap starter option. It's like but... a Craftsman socket set. Yes, you can get your tires off with it. Yeah. But you wouldn't want to use it every day in a mechanic <laughs> setting because you're going to break it. Or, uh, 
or what's that what's that one place that just says the dirt cheap tools oh harbor freight harbor yeah. freight yeah yeah it, you know and <laughs> the funny thing about harbor freight is they got some good stuff in there like uh here i'll give you an example i i buy those cheap uh hvlp spray guns in there because handling acetone is actually really bad for you and i'll spray 10 oh. or 15 guitars with one of those cheap guns and then i'll just throw it away because then I don't have to buy a $25 can in acetone and handle it. Uh, and sense. those guns are really only good for about that many instruments anyway. And you just toss them out. Huh. I don't have to clean it. I don't have to smell it. I don't have to touch it. Just, all right, I'm done. Throw it away. <laughs> There's always a place for the cheap option. Then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, why don't we just start from... A, what wood do you prefer to use? And does it matter whether it's acoustic guitar or electric guitar, what you like? It does It does matter. Um, I typically use, uh, for a neck, it'll, it'll normally be a walnut or maple for an electric. And what would be the reason? Why, why do you prefer walnut and maple necks? I mean, I know um, that's a pretty popular option to well, get. Well, maple like, is, is like a tradition. Yeah. And it has a great density to it, and it's really stable. And you can get it in good quantities. Uh, walnut is a little harder to come by because of the way those trees grow. Uh, it's a little harder to get good straight stock that isn't just absolutely boring. Um, so walnut's a little harder to come by. Um, but we get that here in Oklahoma. Uh, maple, uh, I have to order in a lot of times because it doesn't grow here. But walnut, I can I can find mills that have it. I just have to go digging to find what I want orientation-wise to make a neck. Uh, and I use walnut for tops, too, so to, uh, as well as maple. But those are typically going to be more figured uh, in grain, and uh, they're just going to be the top quarter inch of the instrument. Um, on an acoustic, I typically will use a multi-laminate, and it'll be mostly mahogany, but it'll have some, some maple or walnut stripes in it for stability. Okay. Uh, acoustic has an open grain pattern, and it has very short grain. So it's a lot like short grain fiberglass when you go over an angle, like an acoustic has an angle on the headstock, uh, it can be weak and, and break there. I probably glue 75 or 100 tilt back mahogany uh, acoustic headstocks a year because of the way that wood is. Uh, I've never had to glue a maple one. It just doesn't happen. They bounce. And if they do break, it's catastrophic. They just shear and then it's not worth fixing anyway. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's typically what I use for a neck is, is those three woods. Uh, the bodies that we've got stacked up over here, uh, there's a little bit more variance in it. Most of those are mahogany. Uh, there's uh, a few in there that are alder. And then there's uh, some of this stuff is actually reclaimed wood. I, I do a lot of recycling when I can. And uh, there's a few over there that were actually a barn that was built in New Ocean in 1885. And it's red cedar, western red cedar. And you can't get that wood anymore. They cut all those trees down. The, the grain is so tied on that stuff, and it's nice and light. Um, I've actually got a strat that I made for myself in the house. and I mean, that thing just about floats. feels like it's made of air, hmm. and the grain lines are really close together. So That's cool. Okay, so wait. I just I wanted to <laughs> go back and emphasize on that. So some of these are made from wood that, that was made out of or like... <laughs> A barn that was made out of wood in yeah. the 1800s. Yeah. And you got boards from it and have mm -hmm. made guitars from that. That's yep. super cool. That's yep. super cool. Do you have any other interesting, like, this is where I found this wood or something well, like that? Well, uh, like, some are of some... these necks that are in this pile here, uh, 
were actually uh, walnut boards that were rough sawn and stored in the bus that's on this property here. Oh, really? It was a 1960-61 Bluebird full-size school bus, and it was full, I mean, chest high, full of wood. Uh, most of it was construction material, but at the bottom of it, there was a tree that Dixie had cut down somewhere in Missouri, and that bus has been sitting there since, you know, 81, when it was last tagged. So that wood has been in there for over 30 years and it actually made it really difficult to work because it's what's called case hardened so okay. it's sat in there so long that the rosins inside the wood are like crystallized so it huh. makes it really difficult to work because it's super super hard super super dry and walnut on its own is already dense and then you go do something like that to it, it makes it even more difficult to work so so some of that wood is is actually from in there and I've got some maple that was a, a floor truss in a building they tore down here in North Tulsa. It was an old manufacturing facility. I think it was like a some sort of a, a machine shop or something. Uh, and that stuff was really cool. Um, when you get that old wood, particularly the maple, if it was in a structure, I mean, that building was probably 80 years old or more. When you look at the end of the neck heel, you'll see uh, the rings of the tree. And in a normal guitar, like if you went to Guitar Center and pulled a fender off the wall, you would see maybe seven to ten years of growth rings represented in the heel. Okay. Some of this stuff that I've got here has got 40, 50 rings, 50 years of growth represented in the heel. Just just those lines that are right there that you can see. Wow. So that tree would have been, you know, two or three hundred years old or something like that. Man. Something crazy. So That is crazy. The taller that tree is and the older it is. That height and girth and width, that all presses down on that material and that makes it really, really dense. It's like okay. compacting itself. So that wood is different just based on that. Okay. Uh, the, the density is so much different uh, being an older tree. Hmm. Typically so, what they make stuff okay. out of nowadays is trees that are right around a 15 to 30 year old range. Okay. You know, renewable resource stuff. Sure, sure. Mm. Which is... Probably for the best for mass production. But, yeah, and some trees grow but, faster than others. Like, uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, ash is actually a renewable resource. Those trees within 8 to 12 years can be big enough to produce a one-piece body. Uh, what they call pop ash or swamp ash uh, is what we like to make uh, uh, 50s-style fender instruments out of. And uh, that stuff is a fairly fast-growing tree. From what I understand, so is ebony. There's a guy in uh, Texas that's growing his own ebony trees because uh, rosewood is becoming really, really difficult to import and export uh, without proper paperwork. So some of those are renewable resources if you can uh, start early. Hmm. I mean, 12 years kind of seems like a long time to me, but that guy's going to cash in whenever that stuff comes to term. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> got a big field of those. Yeah. But, um, all right, so you take so you've got your piece of wood. Now you take it in here, and what tools do you use? How how do you get it into the shape of the guitar? Well, uh, we start with probably a 12-foot, 15-foot board, somewhere around there. I'll slice it into uh, reasonable size blanks, probably with just a skill saw. And then I'll trace it out and rough saw it on the bandsaw. And then I have a series of templates that I use and a table router that I made. And we'll get them down to the perimeter shape. And then I have a plunge router and another set of templates that puts all the holes in them that I want. Uh, if it's an acoustic, the, the material is going to be a lot thinner. So it's going to be going through the drum sander to get to that thickness. Okay. And then uh, I have this go bar deck over here. 
and there's some carbon rods that go in there and we'll brace the top with that once we get the thing down to thickness and then the, the same process is true for trimming up that it goes on the router table um, the sides get bent in a bender that's out in the side building here and it actually has light bulbs in it that, to make it hot so you can bend and that was Dixie's machine that she came up with. It's kind of primitive looking, but it, it certainly does the job. Huh, that's cool. Uh, she, yeah. she like designed the, or she made her own uh, Yeah, machine. it's a common machine. Uh, oh, okay. uh, it's a really, uh, uh, everybody's got their version of it, but okay. that's hers. And she... it, it's It's got all the right components. It's just like made out of recycled stuff. <laughs> it's really <laughs> weird looking. Yeah. But it works, it works. Oh, yeah, so. it does. It's, it's certainly a fire hazard. I, I set a timer, and, and I don't leave the room when that thing's on. <laughs> so, all right, so now you've got the shape of the guitar. And then what is the next step? Do you do you finish it, or do you add electronics? Which, which you do you got to finish it first. Okay. Uh, the, the electronics is part of the assembly uh, process. You I do that, that at the very sense. last. and. Uh, so depending on what kind of finish they're getting, uh, I do a whole lot of variety in finish work depending on the time of year. Um, Oklahoma has a, a lot of humidity changes and, uh, uh, with lacquer, you need it to be somewhere between 30 and 50%. And it also needs to be somewhere between 50 and 75 degrees to spray that stuff and get good result. Huh. So I have a number of different hand rub finishes that I can do as well. Uh, some of those include grain fillers that, that are made of either egg egg white or uh, DAP compound. Egg white. Uh, yeah, egg white is a really old method. They've been using that on violins for ages. Huh. Uh, I didn't know that. And the, the DAP compound is kind of a newer thing I learned from watching the O'Brien videos on YouTube. And that stuff will take any color stain just perfectly and it sands out in like 20 minutes. You can even sand it with steel wool. It's so easy to work. It's chalky. Hmm. Um, but then you just go over those and, uh, and any of the preferred finishes. You can use Osmo or Gunstock finish. Uh, satin lacquer is not nearly as affected by the moisture if it's in an aerosol can. Uh, so all those can be applied any time of year. Okay. Uh, there's also some milk paint stuff I've experimented with that has lye in it. you got to wear gloves because it will burn your skin. Uh, but it, it's really, really durable. Uh, after you clear coat it, it's it's got a whole lot of hardness to it. So uh, there's a lot of different finish options you can do. I try to stay away from shellacs because they're not very durable. They come off on the person when they sweat. So uh, <laughs> French polish is I'm just not really into that. Uh, that's a it's kind of a pretentious thing. Uh, it's great on really nice classicals, but uh, me being a, a a bar gig kind of person, I, I wouldn't French polish a Strat and take it to a bar gig. You know what I mean? It's just not going to work out. <laughs> So what uh, what kind of pickups do you prefer to use whenever you when we're talking electric guitars? Man, I, I used to make my own, but I, I came to the conclusion one day that I, there wasn't any way I could make anything better than what I could buy. There's a lot of great makers out there doing pickups, and uh, uh, my personal stuff. I have McNeely's, and those are made in Canada, I believe. Uh, Tim McNeely, and that's what's in my uh, my personal telly that I play all the time. Uh, the Strat has Kinmans, and those are made in Australia, and those are probably the only noiseless Strat pickups that actually sound like Strat pickups. Hmm. Uh, and those are just my, my favorite uh, Strat pickups right now. I also use Fralin and Lawler, uh, Curtis Novak. Um, man, there's there's a number of them. Uh, Anderson, I use Tom Anderson stuff every now and then. And, uh, God, there was one more. I try to stay away from using the Seymour and the DiMarzio stuff because that's just so overdone. I mean, they make some nice products, but 
it's a big factory and I just I want to support the little guys that are doing different stuff you know those sure. guys have been top of the game for you know 30 years they don't need any help from me yeah. <laughs> you know, just and for a guy who's making you know 12 to 20 guitars a year I want to support somebody else's business who's you know somewhere along uh, the same lines as what I'm doing you know okay now my next question is who who are you primarily selling to? Is it people that come and look at what you've made, or is it people that say, "Hey, I want you to make me something"? Uh, it's a little of both, uh, and all of my buddies that I play with, uh, most of them have one or two of my guitars too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Benjamin's got a couple. I think Dylan Layton has the biggest pile of them. He's got like four, I think. Um. My bass player has a bass that he made in a class that I used to teach. Oh, you, so you used to teach a class? I did. I taught a class for five and a half years at Tulsa Wood Arts on how to make your own uh, bass or electric guitar. Really? And uh, Oh, that's cool. We ran that until I pretty much exhausted anybody who would want to do that and spend that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good program. I had a great run at it. And, man, I feel like it actually made me better at what I do to teach it because... Uh, kind of forces you to look at something in a different way. Right. You have to well, explain it. I made all the tooling and templates for that class, and uh, we had a, it was like a 14 week class. Uh, we'd meet every Monday, and for about three hours, I'd have these people. And some of them had never even held a screwdriver before, which was really weird to me uh, to meet someone who was 30 years old and had never held a screwdriver. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that someone so like that existed. So. They do, they do in, in droves. It's wild. Uh, but I, I would see these guys make mistakes in ways that I never thought were possible. So then I would have to figure out how to eliminate the possibility for them to make that mistake that way. So okay. I redesigned my fixtures and tooling after the first couple of years uh, to make it where it was almost idiot proof. Right. Almost. <laughs> almost. Yeah. There was always that one Nothing guy. Nothing is totally idiot proof. Yeah. There was Nothing. always that one innovator. <laughs> <laughs> we figured out a way. The innovator of idiocy. Mm. Uh, that's cool. So, all right. So, I kind of interrupted you to talk about your class. You were uh, you were discussing your sales model, I guess. Oh, it's word of mouth, man. It okay. really is. Uh, I have an Instagram following that's about four hundred short of ten k, but oh. I don't sell a lot of instruments off of Instagram. Maybe one a year. Uh, most of it's word of mouth. Uh, or I'll, I'll take a guitar and go hang it down at Guitar House of Tulsa. I do a lot of contract work for them. I fix stuff for Drew, and um, they help me get the stuff I need because I, I play uh, three or four nights a week, and uh, if I need an amp or I blow up an amp, I can go holler at Drew, and he'll set me up. Uh, so I got a good working relationship with those guys, and they've been good to me over the years. Uh, so, But, yeah, it's it's all word of mouth and, and consignment, uh, but I, I have no trouble getting rid of the guitar. Uh, this big pile I got running here, I got a deal on a bunch of wood, and it takes up a lot less space as a guitar than it does as a big giant board. Okay. So uh, that's why there's this big giant pile of guitars laying around. Um, but yeah, I'm somewhere around maybe 12, 12 to 20 sales a year, if if that. Cool. And I, I don't really push that. I'm not trying to be the next Leo Fender. Most of what I do is restoration and repair. Okay. Uh, and between that and, and the few gigs I have, I've cobbled together a a livable income cool and then uh where do you play when i you play, play? at the colony it's at 28th and harvard every monday at 9 30 and i have a different guest every week 
Oh, nice. Uh, it's cold beer and loud guitars. So that's what it yeah, is. If you're ever down in that area, you know what the colony is because it's the place that has like the outdoor venue right in the middle. Is that is that? Am I thinking of the right place? No, it's not. A, it's across no. street from Brahms. Oh yeah. yes, yes. Okay, yeah, next yeah, to the yeah, Chinese yeah. restaurant. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay, actually been a bar now. since 1955. Really? Yeah, it oh, used to be cool. the Colony Inn, and then it was uh, Foreplay for a little while, and then it was something else. I can't remember. Foreplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, a funny side note on that is a, I bought this amp from Drew. It's a 1953 Fender Super Amp. It's a little 210 5C4, and uh, I called my buddy Jimmy Markham, and I said, "Hey, man, I got this amp. You'd really get a kick out of." Jimmy was. He's was in his seventies at the time. He's since passed. He was a harmonica player uh, from Tulsa. Did a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but I, I called him and said, "Hey man, I got this amp." He says, "What do you mean, super amp? What, what color is it?" And I tell him, "I was like, oh, somebody ripped all the grill cloth off of it." And he's like, "Well, does it look like they redid the speaker cloth by skinning some seventies couch pillow?" And I said, "Well, yeah." He's like, "Well, that's Bob Boatman's amp." And it turned out to be a friend of his amp who played saxophone. Uh, and his dad had bought it brand new when he played with Johnny Lee Wills. And that was a house amp at the Canes wow. for many years. Really? And, you just uh, ended up with it? Uh, yeah, I bought it from Drew, who bought it from <laughs> Schaefer, who bought it from the Boatmans. And uh, Jimmy was like, dude, some of the first gigs that we ever played were at the Colony Inn. Uh, and they were playing sax through that amp. <laughs> so here I've got a weekly at that bar and that amp is back in there with me so huh. that's kind of an interesting uh, <laughs> that coincidence is really cool. that know. is i never set out to buy that amp for that purpose it just ended up being a funny story that i learned after the fact so, so i'm what well, i one random question i am kind of curious about how uh how often does someone bring a guitar to you and they want you to repair it or restore it and you're just like this is beyond being worth it's never beyond have you ever have you ever told them like yeah it is not even worth fixing there's there's a lot of times when it's not worth doing it but it's sentimental i did one for uh chris combs uh i guess this was maybe three years ago and it was an archtop guitar it was like a a sears and roebuck monkey ward archtop guitar from the early 20s and um his granddad had owned it originally and he bought it um, on the catalog and it was delivered by a horse-drawn carriage and they hung this guitar on his mailbox with a string it was not in a box so they run down the quarter mile driveway to go get this thing and granddad's first song he plays on it is uh, uh i believe it was you are my sunshine huh uh, and uh uh so granddad had had uh you know chris's uh father and his uh uh his uh, uncle and at some point in the 60s they were horsing around and they fell on this guitar and broke it real bad like just crushed the top of this thing well they took it to somebody and they fixed it but they did a horrible horrible job at this thing well chris brings us in and says man is this is this viable to fix i'm like it is but it's gonna cost some money he's like i don't care it's sentimental to me if you can make this play i'd love to have it so uh, i went through the process and and took it completely down to the white took it all apart I put it all back together. I put a really nice fingerboard on it, carbon reinforced the neck, and uh, rebraced it with carbon fiber reinforced braces. And then I refinished it. And it turned out that when I did the refinish on it, I took away the nasty 
burgundy paint from the back and the back was beautiful figured bird's eye but back in those days quilted maple and bird's eye maple was thrown away as a trash wood they thought that that was really? junk uh, so here's this cheap guitar that probably cost twelve dollars new that has this master grade bird's eye maple back huh. and they had cracked this back uh, all the way up it and you know, I was like, oh, well, I'll just paint over this. And then I, I got the old paint off. I was like, nope, we're just going to glue this crack. Let it be shown because that's what it is. It's been open since the 60s and now it's not. And glassed it from the inside. And we painted that uh, that bird's eye. And it's just fantastic. Well, when we got it done, I had my buddy Jacob Tovar come over and play uh, You Are My Sunshine on it. And recorded it and sent it to, to Chris. And when him uh, and his dad came to pick it up, it was it was that those kind of stories are the coolest. When you got an yeah. instrument that's got that kind of family history. So here I've got three generations of family history sitting in my living room. I got a picture of them holding granddad's guitar with the son and the grandson. Hmm. And that was a neat story to do, uh, to, to take that instrument, which was totally not worth restoring. Totally not. Right. It By, was a on, wall paper, on paper. Yeah, on paper. On paper. It's a waste it's not, of money, but that's but, not what it's about. Yeah. For, for the heart, it was priceless for those people. Yeah. Those are cool stories. I like working on stuff like that. Okay, that's that's that is really cool. That is really cool. So, um, do you have do you have any sort of do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, just in your or anything else you want to throw out? Well, like, I where mean, can people find you? How can people get in touch with you to get a guitar if they want one? Instagram's pretty easy. Facebook's pretty easy. I'm SLJ Guitars on Instagram. Um, again, I play every Monday night at the Colony at nine thirty. Um. Yeah, I think that's about it. I got a record on uh, Horton Records. Uh, it's a self-titled record, Live at the Colony. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that, that's out on Horton Records. We did that last year. I find that like on their, on that website? Or? Uh, Horton Records, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon. It's on all those things. All right, cool. Is yeah. it under just your name? or? Yeah, it's uh, Seth cool. Lee Jones, Live at the Colony. It's actually a picture of my blue square body truck in front of the colony. And it was nice. taken by Phil Clark, and uh, he does some really great photography work. Yeah, speaking of sentiment, that, that truck looks like it has some sentimental value to it. Is that, uh, have you had that, that for a long time? I haven't, but I, no. I love it. It's a That thing is a beast. It's a money pit and a beast. I love it. Oh, I'm, I'm No, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for one that's like that. I, I want an old yeah. money pit truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's cool. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks so much for talking to me. This is really cool. This shop is, this shop is just so cool. Like This just looks like, I don't know. This looks like just some place that someone could get sucked in for hours. I'm sure you do, right? I do. Wait, well, I, how, cause I, how long did you say a single guitar takes you? Uh, if I did one start to finish, we'd be 22, 26 hours, something yeah. like that. Wow. Yeah. And I do every part of it by hand. I don't have any CNC machines or anything like that. It's all old school method. All right. So if you want to get old school method, high quality guitars in Tulsa, this is where you go. Dig. All right. And that about does it for this interview. Once again, you can find Seth on Facebook or Instagram, SLJ Guitars. And as always, you can, of course, find me as well on Facebook and Instagram, Tulsa Lately, or on my website, TulsaLately.com. And if you're feeling generous, I've got a Patreon as well. You guessed it, the Tulsa Lately Podcast. But find past, present, and future episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the other important podcast platforms 
And speaking of future episodes, there was a bit of a hiatus between this one and the last one, but I can assure you I've got plenty of interviews scheduled, many much more episodes to come soon. But I guess that does it. So Tulsa and surrounding areas, I'll see y'all around.